All right, so as, as uh, Aaron said, my name is Matt. I'm one of the, the uh, preachers here. Uh, and so it's my, it's my pleasure today to be able to talk about Israel. And uh, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek because I actually love just sitting under a Bible text when I preach. Just being like, well, my, my sermon's done when I've said what the main point of the passage is and helped you believe and obey it. Uh, and so when you give me, especially, uh, I really love the Old Testament. When you give me something like, preach on Israel. I'm like, how many days do we have, right? Israel is a big thing. So today we're going to be looking at, uh, in our series, The Theater of God's Glory, our Advent series. We're looking through six Sundays, uh, act by act, through the big story of what God has done, um, not only in the Bible, but in human history, uh, culminating, of course, in Christ. Today we're looking at act number three, which is Israel. Act one was creation, and act two was the fall. So we, we looked at them to see, okay, what, is it, what does it mean for God to be glorified even in something like creation and, and then the fall? What do we learn about him? How can, we, uh, how can we learn to love and trust him and see who he really is and glorify him um, in truth through even, even those acts of history that we know he's the, the great director of? Um, so today we're looking at Israel. And though it's, it's a big topic... Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to point out, though lots could be said, what I'd like to do is track the, um, track the theme of how God's character and his glory is shown in the story of Israel. All right? I'm not going to give you a comprehensive guide to circumcision. Okay? It's another sermon. Uh, by the way, unless you are circumcised, you are not saved. Of heart. Right? Circumcision of all of you, if you're a believer, should be circumcised not only in the flesh, but in, in heart, right? And that's what, that's what God does for us in the new birth. Anyway, that's a different sermon. Uh, this is not a, a sermon on Ten Commandments uh, or any of those kinds of things. It's not an in-depth treatment of the sacrificial system, of the exile, of all those things. But I do want to give us a sweeping overview of the story of Israel and then really dig into what do we learn about God and how do we see uh, the theme of his glory and his character through the story of Israel. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are a great and majestic God who stands enthroned above all things, um, above creation, above the flood, that you, you are enthroned uh, above all of human history, including your choice of this nation, Israel. Lord, we have much to, much to learn in your word. Um, the majority of your word is about this story majority of the Old Testament and and echoes in through the new. Um, But Lord, I pray that we would be able to, as we stand back and and look at the big picture, that we might see you for who you are, that we might understand your plans better, and that we might even see Christ um, and and ourselves in your intentions for your people Israel. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me today to, to say only those things that are true. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be challenged and encouraged in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dig into our text in Exodus 19, uh, just a brief history of Israel. I'm hoping that in a couple of minutes I can give you the whole story here. All right. So Israel, uh, really the birth of Israel begins with God's narrowing of his focus on a certain portion of humanity versus the whole. So in Adam, God was focused on one man. And then when Eve was added, on a couple. And then it broadened right from there to families and clans and tribes until at the flood, God looked around and he's he's focused in again on one man and his family, Noah. 
So the theology of Israel, which is God's chosen people from among the nations, actually begins with his choosing of Noah. And so from Noah, we get Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From Shem, we get eventually a man named Abraham, who's really just a random dude in Babylon, what would become Babylon, an Ur of the Chaldees. And we don't know anything about Abraham, except that one day God spoke to him and commanded him. So Abraham is not a Jew. He becomes the father of the father of the father of the Jews, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. Uh, so, but Abraham, strictly speaking, there's nothing special about him in the text other than uh, he, he heard from God and he, he picked up and he went. Now, he's not a perfect man either, right? He, he's routinely a liar. Uh, he routinely does not do all of what God has commanded. And yet he does respond over and over again in faith. Um, so through Noah, Abraham, and then the patriarchs, um, the nation of Israel, it really only comes into existence as a nation, standing on their own two feet in the ancient world as a nation, only at Mount Sinai. Until then, they're a wandering tribe of nomads who don't have their own land, who have no ruler, uh, who have no inheritance, and have no reputation of their own in a certain place. So post-Red Sea, they end up at this mountain, and God says, I'm here to choose you and make you my own special holy nation. So they're nationalized at Mount Sinai. They, they wander for a while. They, they make a failed attempt and then finally do enter the land in the second generation out of Egypt. The land, of course, is the promised land, modern-day Israel, um, which was previously occupied by other nations, and God chose to put his people there instead. But after they conquer the land, there's many, many years of sinful disobedience. We read in the book of Judges, it's a time of real covenant unfaithfulness by the people of Israel. And yet, they eventually do inaugurate the first Jewish king named Saul, who's terrible. And then God swaps him for this little, short, young kid named David, uh, who's a man after God's own heart, leading into a long line of kings stemming from King David. Um, and, and some competitors as well in the northern kingdom. But nearly all of the kings were terrible. The people just wallowed in sin. Uh, they wallowed in God's judgment for most of their history. And finally, in 587 BC, after sending prophet after prophet to warn them of what was happening and what was going to come um, through their covenant unfaithfulness, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to remove them from the promised land for a 70-year period. All right, so this is time out basically, uh, and, and a serious winnowing of his people. But upon returning, the people rebuilt the city and the temple, and then they continued to wait for their Messiah that had been promised through those same prophets that warned of their exile. Um, they were further conquered, this time by the Greeks, uh, and then also by the Romans, in, into which we find Christ and the church are born into this context. And then rejected by the Jewish nation as a whole. Both Christ and the church um, rejected by the Jews. Leading to another exile and destruction of the city in 70 AD. Titus and his his legions show up and just raise the city to the ground. Destroy the temple. Kick out the Jews. And and that's really still to this day uh, where we're at. Except for uh, a couple of major events. So in the 2,000 years or so since then, 
the Jews have been scattered. Um, there's some have been in the Holy Land, but most not. They have attempted to preserve their religion and their, their culture outside of the Holy Land without any access to the temple, trying to still preserve the word and all the time rejecting Christ. They've been the subject of great persecutions, culminating, of course, in the Holocaust. Um, and then after a nearly 2,000-year period, a return miraculously to the land of Israel in, in 1946 became a nation again for the first time. Um, on, on the stage of nations since about 2,000 years. And yet they are less like a kingdom of priests than they've ever been. They, they were tasked in Exodus 19, which we'll look at in a second, with being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. And the, that descriptor, um, it, it looks to be, on the surface, less true than ever. The former temple site remains closed to Jewish worship. The threat from enemy nations is existential and constant. Most of the Jews still live outside the promised land. In terms of righteousness, Israel has the highest late-term abortion rate of any developed nation. And uh, their founders of of the modern state were largely secular and or Buddhist. If you look at the, the founders of the modern state, they're a largely secular nation. So for all of that history... What is God's plan? And so to discover this, I'd like to go back to sort of the seminal moment when we said the nation of Israel is created on the other side of the Red Sea as they stand before God at Mount Sinai and covenant with him. And he declares them a new nation before him, his special chosen people. We want to kind of rewind the tape there and say, what was the point? What's the point of all of this drama? And then how do we how do we see the glory of God uh, revealed? What is his design? Why did he choose to covenant with them in the first place? And why do they play such an important role in the drama of God's glory revealed in human history? So now we'll turn to our text, Exodus 19. Here we are. We'll just do the first six verses. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, the three months post-Passover, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, And they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So in this passage, the Lord lays out the new identity and calling for this people. They are no longer just the children of Abraham. They are now a special nation. And notice in this this text, the ground of their identity is what God has done on their behalf in bringing them out of Egypt. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So we notice right away, the basis of this nation is that another was judged that they might be saved. Another nation was put into the Red Sea and drowned. Another nation received the ten plagues and the death of the firstborn. 
in order that they might have life as a nation. In fact, God crushed the, the major power, the, the military superpower of the ancient world that would be their next door neighbor to give this nation time to conquer the land and to flourish. And I mean, we can see the parallels immediately with Christ and with ourselves, but we want to put that on a pause just for a moment. But I'd just like to point out redemption is the basis here. This is not a case where God goes to a nation and says, if you deserve it, I'll give it to you. You'll be special if you can just earn it. He says, look, I've carried you on eagle's wings. I have judged another that you might live. And now on the basis of my free gift of redemption that I've worked on your behalf, um, I've brought you to myself. And now, therefore, and these are the basic call. This is the basic call for Israel. If you will, obey my voice, keep my covenant, stay close to me, listen when I talk, stay in a faithful covenant relationship with me, then you shall be, and this is the whole point of that whole story that we just went through with Israel. You shall be what? My treasured possession among all peoples. When I look at you, my heart will swell with affection like no other nation. You will be, belong to me in a covenant relationship. It'll be like a, like a marriage um, compared to all the other peoples. I will call you mine. Um, secondly, you will be a kingdom of priests. So you'll have a job to do. You'll have some function, a priestly function. Uh, and, and thirdly, you'll be a holy nation, set apart, righteous, belonging to me alone. So this is, these are the three things that are, that are new now as a nation in their identity. And this is really the purpose of the whole story of Israel, is that we might see what it's like when God would select the people and say, you are, uh, you are my personal treasure, you are a kingdom of priests, and you are a holy nation. And, and so what I'd like to do is for you to picture just for a moment what it might be like if you were at a play. Now, this series is called The Theater of God's Glory, all right? So this is, maybe you go to a play called The Theater of God's Glory, and you show up, and you, you sit down in the audience, right? And you're, you're watching this play, and there's, there's four acts in this play. So for the first act, the director of the play, you can hear him off stage, and he says, okay, he selects from the audience, you, you, and you, get on stage, you're my cast, this is what God has done in choosing Israel. And he says, this is your job, right? You're going to display me, the director, and my glory, who I am, what I'm like, what I, what I would like to see happen with the human story, how I respond to humanity, all of this. I want, to, I want you to display all of my attributes on stage. Go. How does it go? And so the first thing here is we want to learn about God's character through the drama of the nation of Israel. And what can we learn when this group of, of ragtag characters steps on stage? First of all, we see at Mount Sinai, God actually reaches down and declares himself, reveals himself through his word and through his prophets and by his spirit to his people. So the first thing we want to learn about the director of the play is he's actually interested in revealing himself. He's not just some puppeteer off in the distance. Right? He's not some unconcerned deity that kind of kicks off the world and then steps back and watches and see how, how it plays out. Right? I'll set the rules and then you're on your own. That's, that's not who he is. First of all, he's spoken to this nation. They've heard from God himself. So this is called the, the doctrine of divine knowability and, and God's self-revelation. 
he really does make himself known in a special and direct way to his people. So the audience sits there and, and begins immediately to wonder, and, and this is part of the missionary role of Israel, is if he would reveal himself to them, I wonder if he has anything to say to me. As the audience member, you begin to wonder if the director, you know that he's already selected a cast from the, from the audience, right? You kind of wonder, okay, I wasn't chosen, but, but I'm really cut from the same cloth they were. And I wonder if, if this whole play is designed that I might also hear from him. Secondly, um, as we look through these, these three things here, that the personal treasure of God, we see God's sovereignty. He, he may choose, he may redeem, he may judge, he may covenant freely. God is free in his will. He may sovereignly choose whoever he will to be his main actors on the, on the stage. He can choose a nation above all others. And this is really a death blow to what we call egalitarian theology, which is that God would have no right to elevate anyone over anyone else, right? That everything has to be equal in outcomes, equal in calling. Now, we believe that men and women are created equal before God in terms of dignity and worth and, uh, and access to, to the Lord, right? And yet there does seem to be some distinction in the scripture between roles uh, and, and some, some differences, some complementary uh, roles that God has given men and women. And the question becomes, is God allowed to do that? Would God ever elevate one above another for his own purpose? Would he ever give authority or a special job to one person and not give it to another? Or the other way around? Could he, could he do that and put the Gentiles over the Jews at any point? You know, does God have the authority to do this? And Exodus 19 tells us he actually has. It's not a theoretical question. This is a nation that had nothing special going on. They weren't more numerous. They weren't more righteous. And God said, you, on stage, I'm going to do something with you. Uh, so this is, this is actually one of the bases for complementarian theology in this text. God's own sovereignty in choosing his personal treasure. Um, and we see God's initiating love. Israel didn't fight their way out of Egypt. God stepped in after 400 years and says, now's the time. You're my people, and I will make you my treasured nation. He judged another on their behalf. He accomplished their redemption, like bearing them up on eagles' wings while they just looked on. We see his unconditional election. So this is a chosen people, um, but God was not bound to give them grace or elevate them. Israel's the treasured possession, but not by merit. Abraham was, as we said, a random guy. Isaac would have never have been born without God's intervention because his parents were both about 100 years old. Jacob was a lying cheat who tricked his father on his deathbed. This is not a nation that deserves election, that deserves God's choice. The brothers sold Joseph into slavery and assumed that he would die, and they did so. The Israelites in Egypt forgot God and worshipped idols in Egypt. We're not told that in the Exodus account, but we're told that in Ezekiel 20. If you go there later, we're told Moses came and said, put away your idols, and they refused. So God brought them out for his own namesake because he made a promise to Abraham. This is not a nation that was, that was chomping at the bit. These were your reluctant audience members, right? They're the ones who avoided eye contact. When, when the director was making the choice, right? And they're also the ones who are, like, they did not win the MVP in drama class in high school, right? 
These are the ones who are least voted least likely to ever become a Hollywood star, right? And God says, perfect, because this is not the theater of Israel's glory. This is not the theater of your glory. This is the theater of God's glory. So I'll choose the most unlikely characters who are going to show who I am and not get the applause for themselves. Um, and look at Deuteronomy 9 together with me. I won't have it on screen, but it'll be worth turning there. Deuteronomy 9. The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon, it's actually three sermons, that, that Moses gave just before he died to the generation of children whose parents had passed away in the wilderness because God told them they could not enter the land because they refused to believe that he loved them and would enable them to fight the giants. He said, we think God hates us. We think he wants to kill us. We're not going in the land. So God said, fine, then you can go camping and your children will enter the land. And, and so the children, here they are, and they're standing before Moses and all of the first generation, 20 years and upwards, have died off. What would Moses say to encourage them as they're about to step into the land, like a coach uh, about to send his team onto the ice, knowing he himself has also been banned from going in the land, but he wants to see them succeed. This is the pep talk. Deuteronomy is a book of the pep talk uh, for the second generation. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess, dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall. The sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Why on earth would God command Israel to fight people taller than them who are in walled cities who can just throw rocks on them, who can just laugh at them and starve them out, right? Why would God do this? Why would he command you to fight somebody whose spear you can't even pick up? It's because you're supposed to know that these nations are greater and mightier than you are, but the Lord is a consuming fire in your midst. This is the theater of God's glory. He chooses the, the meek. He chooses the humble. And he says, he will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. But do not say, this is verse four, in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. In other words, what do you learn from the drama of the conquest? Not how awesome Israel is, how deserving they are, but you learn that God will judge sin and he'll do it on his own, but he will use Israel to do it in a way that they take no glory, right? First of all, they refuse to do it in the first generation. Secondly, they're unable to do it in the second generation without his help. So we learn about God's um, holiness. They will be a holy nation as much as they're a holy nation in their righteousness because of their proximity to God and the word that he's given them and the sacrificial system, there is a holiness that they gain by being close to the Lord. They are a holy nation who is designed not only to show their own holiness, but their holiness is there as they trust the Lord, as they walk into the promised land. Their holiness is there to magnify the one who's truly holy. They're a holy nation who's there not to be an end in themselves, but to show you how holy their God is. In the case of the conquest, they do it by slaughtering uh, those that God has commanded, the wicked of the land. Um, the rest of the chapter goes on 
Um, know therefore in verse 6 that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came up into the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You've been rebellious against the Lord. So how's it, how did it go? How did it go? So the, you know, the director grabs these folks from the audience. He says, go show who I am. How, how did it go? Ultimately, uh, mixed, right? They definitely show that it's not about their glory, right? But ultimately, at the end, they're kind of standing. Nobody even wants to really act anymore. And when they do, they're, they're kind of doing the opposite of what the director says. He says, you've been doing this the whole time. Now, was it a mistake? Did the direct, should the director have chosen somebody else? No, the director's perfect in his choice. And, and what we learn is that God's choice is not conditioned on your righteousness, past, present, or future. And yet, are they still his treasured possession? They are. It's remarkable. So through the wilderness testing we, and, and through their thousands of years of rebellion, we can see the great patience of the, of the director. We can see how he does not cast them off the stage. Um, we can see also in, in, Deuteron- uh, sorry, in Exodus 32, they, they turn around and while the law is being given on Mount Sinai, they decide after 40 days, that's enough. Probably God disappeared. Uh, you know, he's, he's not with us anymore. So we'll just build a golden calf and worship that. And they've already heard the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, right? They know they're not supposed to make any idols. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. They saw his thunder. They saw his lightning. He lit the top of the mountain on fire and shook it and had trumpets and, and blasts that were so loud. They said, how about God doesn't speak to us anymore? Maybe he'll just speak through most. I mean, you'd think the fear of God would be in them. They have his word. And yet they worship this golden calf. And what does God do? In the very next chapter, he proceeds with setting up the sacrificial system. After such great apostasy. I mean, this is just a scandal. The actors on the stage have actually revolted against the director. They're doing the exact opposite of the script. Everything the script says, they're just going to go, yeah, but we'll do something else. Right? And all the nations are watching. And and this is what they're going to do. So they're supposed to be um, also a kingdom of priests. And what that means is, I think, not necessarily that they're going to be royalty and priests. Although the word kingdom, I think, is significant in the context. They are definitely royalty. Uh, But the whole point is that the whole group of them are going to be priests. The entire kingdom of Israel will be made up of priests. And then that begs the question, well, then who, who are they serving as priests? So the job of a priest is to stand between God and man, a holy God and sinful humanity. And through the sacrificial system, through atonement, through what God has revealed, to take these sinful men and bring them into God's presence. And then in the same, in the same breath, whatever God has spoken, to be able to bring that back to the people. These are mediators. And if they're all mediators, who, who are they standing and bringing to God? It would be the nations. There's a missionary role here. Um, and the whole nation is given this task. The, the Levites later are chosen to serve as priests to the, the priestly nation. And then the high priest is the priest of priests within the priestly nation. And, and so we begin, to, it, we begin to get the concept that this whole thing is going to be very much defined by a priestly function, a mediator role. 
Um, how does that go? I mean, initially, the other nations, as they begin to, as Israel begins to march into the land, the other nations are afraid. And they say, we heard what God has done for you. And, and examples like Rahab, who are actually brought in to believing along with Israel in, in their God, even though she's a, a pagan Gentile prostitute, right, who lied uh, as her one act of interaction with the Hebrew people, lied on their behalf. Uh, and God looks at that and says, hey, come on stage too, right? That's, that's perfect. My people are bringing others from the audience now onto the stage to join them. And so there have been times where it's gone really well. And yet there have been other times where the nations look at them and they scoff. And they say, you're no different. You're just, you're just like us. You're unrighteous. Uh, your God is not with you. Your God has handed, over your to, to, handed you over to your enemies. So very, very often their priestly function is lacking. They tended to be more internally focused than external. And they're also thirdly, so firstly, a treasured possession. Secondly, a kingdom of priests. And thirdly, a nation set apart, a holy nation. Um, the, the word holy does mean set apart. But I think that we need to think a little deeper about this. So what can, what can be set apart and be perfectly fine? What kind of thing could you think of that you could cut off from everything outside of itself and it would be perfectly fine. It'd be lacking nothing. Suffer no loneliness. Suffer no lack. In this sense, being set apart means being all sufficient in and of yourself. If you're able to be cut off from everything else and, and be just perfectly fine. And really what we're talking about is the Lord himself, who is alone the Holy One, the only true Holy One. God does not need his creation he could destroy everything he's made, and he's promised that he wouldn't, but he could destroy everything that he made tomorrow and be unharmed himself. He would lack nothing. And so in that sense, only God um, is holy, and this is what we read in 1 Samuel 2.2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Israel is called a holy nation. Now, that doesn't mean Israel has everything in and of itself to be cut off from every other nation and be just fine. Unless the Lord is in their midst, providing everything they need. And this brings us all the way back to the garden. Will Israel believe that God tabernacling in their midst, giving them his law, giving them his commandments, giving them his covenant promises, giving them a sacrificial system, speaking through the priests, letting the priests provide atonement on behalf of the people. Is that all you need, or do you need the gods of Egypt? Right, would you be okay as a nation without military alliances with other nations? This is all part of holiness. Is God at the center of Israel enough for them? Brings us back to the garden. Did God provide everything that Adam and Eve needed? Or did they feel that with God and everything he provides, they're still lacking? The question is one of holiness. So that when we, when, when we enter God's throne room, what do we constantly find is the main theme that's being cried out? Holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is central to his character. And by putting Israel in the middle of a wilderness with nothing to eat, nothing to drink, no military alliances, no friends to come and help them, they find out if God in your midst is enough. Does God have everything that he needs? And when he shares what he has with you, do you have everything you need? Uh, and the answer is a resounding yes. God has given them amazing gifts. 
so that the laws of Israel were designed to highlight the Lord's holiness among them through the sacrificial system, and then their resultant holiness. So many of the strange laws in the Old Testament that are given to Israel about not wearing polycotton shirts, right? Or not planting two types of crops in your field. Um, and various others. No, inter- no intermarriage are all a picture on stage of God's glory that when you have him, you don't need anything else. You don't need to mix and match. You just need the Lord. That's it. Um, and so they can be holy because they know, love, and believe the Holy One in their midst. So Israel on its own is a wonderful demonstration and lesson concerning the nature and glory of God. Um, yet Israel is also a pattern for what God will ultimately fulfill in the future. It's a roadmap for where he's going. Christ ultimately the climax of the truths prefigured by the nation of Israel. Um, it's also a pattern for the church. And so we want to unpack this. This was all act one, right? Where God takes people and throws them on stage. We see how this goes. And we learn about him in the process. Uh, act two is where the director himself, looking at the chaos on stage, being pleased with the results because the audience who's been watching closely begins to understand something more about the director through the successes and failures of this original cast. He now steps on stage himself and demonstrates all that he asked them to do in the first place. Gives the script as it was originally written. Perfectly fulfills the task of being a a treasured people, a, a nation of priests, and a holy nation. And he steps on stage, and guess what? The the cast, they look at him and they go, who are you? They've been hearing his voice off stage the whole time. But then when they finally see him on stage doing the things that they were called to do all along, we don't like you that much. You know, we kind of, we know, we know what you're claiming. We see what you're doing doesn't sit right with us. And so they actually rebel against him. And to, with the help of the audience members, they kill him. Right there on stage. This is this tr- play is you know you've heard of some dark plays, you know this is this would be definitely be a tragedy, uh, and somewhat unexpected. It's like I think were they supposed to say the line "Let's kill them all," right? Like let's all let's all gang up on the director and kill him. Like this play took a, a really dark turn. Uh, like we're looking for that disclaimer, right? No no directors were harmed in the making of this production, and yet it's not there. This thing is the real deal. And the director lays there on stage dead. The original cast says, then that's it. We're done with him. And they move off stage. And then the director himself stands up and is raised from the dead. And the audience, who helped kill him, by the way, goes, oh. And this is, what, this is what we find when Christ enters the scene. So act two of the play, in terms of Israel's history, is where... Christ himself comes and fulfills everything Israel was ever intended to be. He sums up everything that Israel was called to and demonstrates it in his own self. Isaiah 42, 6, one of the servant songs says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And in the book of Isaiah, you're left wondering, is he talking about Israel or is he talking about someone else? Israel has been called his servant in the book of Isaiah, but it seems like he's talking about one man. And the answer is yes. This is the task that Israel was always assigned to. I am the Lord, he says, I have called you in righteousness. 
Ah, holy nation, I will take you by the hand and keep you. You are mine. You're my treasured people. I give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. I'm sending you out as a priest to bring in the nations. This is something that Israel was always supposed to do, and it's something that Christ does in spades. So looking at him as the beloved of the Father, Mark 1.11, I'm going to hit a bunch of verses here, so you might be, uh, it might be best just to listen along. As a voice came from heaven, Mark 1.11, and said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. John 3.16, Jesus is called the only Son of the Father. And interestingly, in Genesis 22, verse 2, Isaac is about to be offered on the altar. And God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Is Isaac Abraham's only son? No. Ishmael was born before Isaac. Right? Abraham has two sons. At least. What does he mean? Take your only son, Isaac. Take your most precious, your treasured son. And this is, I believe, what John 3.16 is telling us. Not that God has other sons. But that not only is Jesus the only son of the Father, he's also the most treasured and beloved possession that the Father has. And he offers him. Christ, the personal treasure of the Father offered for us. And, and Christ, the, the priest, is, is Christ a fulfillment of this call to be a, a kingdom of priests? Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he needed to be one of the original cast. He needed to come from them. Because they were the ones given the original command, right? And so who is going to stand as the new Israel on stage when old Israel has fled and failed? Who will step up? Well, it needs to be somebody who represents the original cast who's going to come and, and step up. He needs to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And propitiation just means when there's wrath against you, that some kind of atonement is provided to satisfy that wrath and instead bring uh, pleasure uh, and, and favor into your life. Hebrews seven twenty six. For in, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Ephesians 5, 2. We're commanded to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Israel's call to be a kingdom of priests and that missionary call to reach into the world of lost humanity and bring them to God. Christ fulfills the original mandate given to Israel. Now, some of us have red flags going up in our head, right? As soon as, because we're, we're afraid of this thing called replacement theology, right? Where, well, if, does that mean God is just done with Israel? Like he used them for a while and threw them off? Um, and we will deal with that. Um, but for now, just hear the scriptures that Christ is the new and better Israel, did what Israel was always commanded to do, right? Very clearly, 
He is the priest that was always to be uh, the, the job of, of Israel as a nation. First um, Timothy 2, continuing in verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, this was always in the script. And now that we've come to the right place where we've seen the, the failure uh, and some mixed success of the original cast, now this man enters the scene at the, at the right moment. For this, it says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, uh, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Um, additionally, Christ fulfills the call for Israel to be a holy nation. Luke 18, 18 through 23 says, And a, a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good <clears throat> uh, except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Concept of lack. You are not holy in one way. You're still missing something. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In other words, you can have all the possessions in the world. You may have kept all the horizontal commandments, right? The, the commandments that have to do with your relationships. Maybe you have. What if you don't actually have the Holy One in your midst? What if you're not actually serving and following and loving the Holy God who has everything that you need? Never mind the car, right? Never mind the bank account. You may have those things, great. But what you truly need, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to lack nothing, is the Lord himself in a direct covenant relationship with you, giving you everything he promised. So Jesus says, great, you've got all the stuff, you've kept all the commandments, but you don't have me. That's the one thing you lack, and it would be worth getting rid of everything else. He is the ultimate definition of what it means to be holy, because he's God himself. And unfortunately, the man heard these things and was, became very sad, for he was extremely rich, which is ironic. Is he extremely rich if he has everything but has not the Lord? He's not rich at all. He has a great number of possessions, but he's not rich. Um, to, to bolster the point that Christ himself is the new Israel, um, we'll look at just a couple of metaphors. The light. Uh, we already read in Isaiah 42.6, I've given you as a light to the nations. John 8 and John 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in Jeremiah 2.21, God calls Israel a vine. He says, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned into turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Hosea 10.1, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. And then in John 15.5, in the context of all this Old Testament imagery of Israel being the vine that bears fruit, Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is claiming the titles, the descriptors, the metaphors, the job description, everything that belongs to Israel and saying, that's me. I have come. I am the director on stage fulfilling my own script. So, 
if Act 2 features Christ as the new and better Israel, Act 3, the director himself, the risen director, right, stands there in front of a shocked audience and some, some Jewish original cast members kind of s- scattered around and he actually calls new cast members onto the stage from the audience. And in fact, lest you think that this is plan B, he does one of those things that you've seen at like Chris- Christmas work parties, right? Where they check under your seat. If you have a sticky note under your seat, come on up on stage, right? Knowing that he would, he would need at some point, he was going to stand on stage himself and call a new cast. This is not plan B. The church is now the new Israel, called as the new cast, given the same script in a whole new context with a new director standing there teaching them the parts and, uh, and brings forward uh, a new act. God selects audience members to join him on stage, teaches them Israel's role. Um, but it's clearly not plan B. It's what's been planned all along. Is the church the new Israel? And this is, again, some of you, your, your replacement theology flags, your, your buzzers are, are ringing Um, Believe me, I'm getting there. Um, The church is to fulfill the role and goal of Israel through our connection with Christ, who is the true Israel. We are not the true Israel. Christ is the true fulfillment of Israel. And through our connection with him, he teaches us the script. We fulfill the same patterns. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You notice anything matching there? Let me say that again. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's saying Exodus 19 is now yours. Exodus 19, 4 through 6 is all about you. And why did he do it? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, it's on the basis of redemption. There's a missionary task. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are also carried on eagles' wings, not by works or merit for our salvation. God is totally faithful to his covenant towards us when we fail, just like Israel. We are his kingdom, his priests. Look at Revelation 1, verse 5 to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's a new exodus. And made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We're sent as priests of God, missionaries in the world. Philippians 4.18 I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Those are the same terms that were used for Christ's own offering of himself. A fragrant offering before God. And this is what the, the gift uh, of this church to, to John um, Represented, or sorry, to Paul. Um, and then individually in the ministry God has given us, we actually have a priestly duty to fulfill. Romans 15, 15 through 17. On some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Paul views himself as a priest 
gathering a blameless, un- unblemished offering, which is the Gentile converts, and saying, here you go. This is the, the function of a priest, right? To take, to reach into the sinful and lost world, to bring the atonement, in this case by declaring the gospel and, and the, the existence of a great high priest, the only mediator between God and man, and say, hey, have you heard? Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Do you know that, that he's called not only the Jews, but also Gentiles to be part of his treasured possession? Come. And this is what Paul's doing. And, he's, and then he offers it as a priest. Now, in Paul's own theology, there's only one mediator between God and man. He's not pretending to be a priest in some kind of a, a you know, he's not a mini Jesus, right? But he is saying, look, this ministry we have is to reach into the lost world and bring people to the one true mediator. Um, and then he says, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. You have a job to do. Do it well. And the priesthood is not only uh, has a missionary role, but is to be holy. First Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are under priests of our great high priest. And so for us, as we see, okay, the original cast, Act 1, they're off the stage. The director stepped up and called us. What do we do now? We're standing on stage with this, like, this, is, this does not belong to us, but it's been given to us by grace. What do we do? Let's embrace this new identity not as people who are God's plan B, but as the fulfillment of what Israel pointed to all along. So as long as we're connected to Christ, uh, this will be true of us. And he is our true Israel, our true vine. Let's accept this. Let's respond with covenant affection and love that God has given to us. It's one thing that Israel always struggled with, to know that God really truly loved them and treasured them. They always thought maybe there was something there Who's waiting to squash them, waiting to reject them, bringing them into places with no water, bringing them into places with no food. Uh, and, and so by this point in the play, you and I, we're not better people than the Israelites, but we do have better promises, better hope, and the director's on stage with us. He's actually come and shown us the way, demonstrated what it would look like. Um, the reformers called this the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We don't have certain, pre- I'm not your priest, right? It's not my job to stand between you and God. We all have access to the one mediator and are sent into the world in priestly service as missionaries, as evangelists, um, living as a holy nation. When we say only God is truly holy, hopefully it not only comes because we believe it's theologically true, but it's a powerful statement when the world looks at a church that is actually living out holiness to a greater degree than the world is. They say, wow, you guys are really, you guys really have it together, right? Well, actually, you've never heard of the Lord because when you compare us to him, he alone is holy. So you and I, we come before him and we say, you alone, God, are holy. I have no holiness to offer. And yet as a holy nation, as that part of our call is to actually live a life of increasingly, increasing holiness so that when the world looks at us and says, that's holy people, we might say, hey, the holiness is really the diamond here. This is God's righteousness. And we are still, we are not some 
you know, near diamond. We're not some kind of like off-white sheet of paper that the diamond is contrasting with. Compared to God, our holiness is still just a black backdrop showing that shimmering diamond of God's own righteousness. Now, we're not as black as we once were. We're blacker than we will be. And one day, we'll be made totally uh, pure in his presence. But even when the world looks at our holiness, we should be quick to point out that it pales in comparison to the one true God. This is our missionary goal. Not that our holiness speaks for itself, but that it tells of one uh, who gives us our holiness as a gift. So now let's deal with the elephant in the room. What about those old cast members? So what is, is there an act four? And there is. Act four in the story of Israel is that Israel is now in the audience. They don't appreciate how the play is going. They don't appreciate the new cast. They still don't like the director. But act four is when God's own promises to Israel, here in Exodus 19, you are my treasured possession. I will make you a holy nation. I will make you a kingdom of priests. I will, I will keep you as my own. Those words have not been forgotten. They have not been canceled. None of God's promises fail. And so first we see that they don't fail because Christ and the church have come and fulfilled them. But what about that old cast? Jeremiah 33, 23 through 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. This is a prophecy not only of Christ, but also the restoring of mercy to the original cast. In Romans 11, 11 through 12, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, permanently, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The one cast left the stage, and a new cast has been brought on. It's a wonderful thing for that new cast. And then the purpose, so as to make Israel jealous. So they're still in the audience, and they're watching. And they say, I mean, I, I can get on that stage. This will be their response one day. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, in other words, their, you know, their goof up on stage meant someone else got a shot. Um, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You know that last scene in every high school operetta that you ever went to, every Broadway show? A whole cast comes back on, everybody from the beginning all the way to the end. And they've all played a part. And they're all welcomed back on and they all take a bow together. This is that moment where if, the, if their rejection from the stage meant the Gentiles could come on, what a party it's going to be when they can all come on stage together. How much more will their full inclusion mean? And then verse 24, for if you Gentiles were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. 
And so, God chose in Act 1 a special nation to show his glory and declare among all the nations who God is. Act 2, God always intended for his son uh, to come and sum up all of his intentions with the nation of Israel, revealing the Father perfectly, becoming a better priest, a king, and a kingdom, showing true holiness, and laying down his life as God's most treasured gift to humanity. Act 3, as the redeemed and chosen in Christ, you and I pick up this calling, though always to point to the great Israel, Christ himself, through whom we've received this new identity. And then finally, let's be confident in the new covenant that we're part of, knowing that even God's old covenant with Israel has not been abandoned, forgotten, or neglected because a better covenant has arrived. But that God will keep every one of his promises, even those made at Mount Sinai here, when Israel comes to embrace their calling to be a treasured, holy, and royal priesthood by putting their faith in Christ, who summed up all these things. And after all, they, like us, were always made holy, not in connection, only in connection to the true Holy One in their midst. So lest we be arrogant as the church and think that now it's all about us and that we're somehow this super cast. It turns out our role is the same as Israel's, and that is to show everybody not our own great performance, but the director's. And so the goal here, and this is a lot of information I just gave you, right? Big sweeping, uh, sweeping history of Israel. The goal here is doxology. That's what I would like for you to respond in your heart now. As I, as I read a few things here, um, and as we sing our final songs, we need to praise him for what he's done in using this nation in such a mighty way and for what he has yet to do uh, with them. So praise him with me. Let's praise God's grace and faithfulness in choosing Israel, in taking the stage himself, in calling us to join him and by not deserting the original cast. He's just utterly faithful. Praise him for revealing himself with patience towards his elect. Man, that one, I know in my own life, I'm so thankful for his patience um, throughout the the many acts of my life as well. Praise him as you relish the fact that you were once a rebellious member of the audience, but are now his treasured possession. And then finally, let's take priestly action in the world. In Christ, let's call others onto the stage in the theater of God's glory. And, and in closing, I'd like to just observe one thing. So often our gospel presentation ends with our reconciliation with God in Christ. I think if we are truly now part of his treasured possession in, in Christ, then we know we have a job to do. And, and so when you share, your, share the gospel with others this week, and as we're talking about the Christian life, let's not only make it about reconciliation with God, but let's also include that call to go out and actually be priests in the service of our great high priest. Um, because this, at the end, in the end of time, the Lord would like to bring more and more people from the audience. This is not a play that you show up and you watch. This is a play that when those around us see it being lived out in our own lives, that we might actually invite them on stage with us so that even more might come. Let's pray.